This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Terry White talks about her incredible memoir, Coming Undone. Terry White is a writer, broadcaster and the editor-in-chief of Empire magazine, having previously edited some of the most read titles in the UK and US, including Time Out New York and Shortlist. She is the current entertainment magazine editor of the year from the British Society of Magazine Editors. And Terry's debut book, Coming Undone, a memoir we're going to be talking about today. Terry, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. So the book starts with you... In New York City, in the midst of something of a breakdown, let's talk about first why you were in New York then. I was in New York primarily for work. So I'd been a magazine writer and then editor for about 10 years in London. Got offered a job in New York, um, which obviously I, I bit their hands off and I spent about three and a half years in New York. But it also, you know, work aside, been always somewhere that I'd long to live. I was really into the cinematic version of the city that I access through records and through books and through films and through telly, this version of of New York City that seemed incredibly glamorous, incredibly exciting, but also really, I suppose, like a a blank page for me to becoming anything that I wanted to be in that city. And, And that's what drew me to the city as well as this job offer. And so let's talk about, I mean, working there as, you know, for magazines and then eventually as a magazine editor. What was your lifestyle like at that time? In some respects, it was what you'd expect it to be. There were lots of parties, lots of dinners, nice restaurants. But weirdly, you know, the rest of my life didn't quite look like that. So I write about it in the book, but I lived in this absolute hovel in the West Village on Christopher Street. And it was essentially one room it was a studio apartment there were 
two windows at the end of the room, no windows on the other side. It was incredibly dark in half of the flat. There was a bathroom that had been tacked on. At some point in the flat's history, it didn't really have proper plumbing. The toilet would always get blocked and overflow. The shower wasn't really a proper shower. So I, I suppose in some respects I had this job and this lifestyle that seemed to be really glamorous and really cool and very, you know, as you'd expect a magazine editor's job to be. And then I was going home to this pretty much a shithole in in the village somewhere I'd always wanted to live and always been excited by um and that very much for me summed up what New York was like which was these very different experiences you could have in the same city and also you're a you know you're a British woman going over to New York and taking some quite plum jobs I mean how did that go down <laughs> I, uh, not always terribly well you know in my first job there were a few women who'd gone for the job that I was eventually given who, who made it very clear that they weren't terribly pleased that I'd been given it there was a much more I suppose overt hostility in New York than there'd ever been in London so I suppose magazines and journalism is quite ambitious and quite cutthroat to some degree in the UK but also it's very much publishing in London is very much a family the magazine industry is very much a family. You're all kind of in it together, ultimately. But New York, and I think this is very um, uh, representative of New York as a whole, regardless of the job you're doing, is it's very much about individual achievement. It's very much about competition. It's very much about ambition. And that pits people against each other. And I think there were definitely people who thought, what the fuck is this British girl coming over here taking our jobs, really? So let's talk about what were the immediate circumstances that led up to, as I said, at the book, the beginning of the book starts with you basically being hospitalised. Mm. So let's talk about what were the sort of immediate circumstances that led up to that happening. So I'd been in New York for a few years and I had kind of been in a spiralling mental health crisis, I suppose. I'd always had mental health issues since being a little girl. I struggled with abuse of alcohol and self-harm as well. And by the time I got to New York, things became quite bad and quite serious quite quickly. And in the immediate, I suppose, run-up to when I ended up in the hospital, I was drinking every single day, not not at work or not in the daytime, but as soon as I'd finished at work, I'd go to a local bar, usually by myself, and I would sit and I would drink and drink and drink. I was blacking out through drinking probably five or six nights a week. I was self-harming. I was taking more than my prescribed amount of prescription pills. And so I was I was in a very bad place in those immediately preceding weeks. There's also a lot of suicidal ideation. And I was thinking a lot about, about killing myself, about how I do it. That became a big obsession of mine in those weeks prior being hospitalized and things spiraled quite intensely in those few weeks and then one night I went out after work after a particularly challenging day at work I got drunk and I woke up the next day holding two empty pill bottles pills that I'd been prescribed for a mental health issue and I'd taken both of those full pill bottles and at that point it became apparent that I had when drunk the night before taken an overdose. So I mean we've we've all seen people being hospitalized in this way you know in the films and one also imagines you know especially a place like New York is full of people that have you know homeless people people that have been that have fallen through the cracks of society Mm. that end up going through this system so 
describe to us what it was actually like for somebody who has, you know, a relatively high-powered job being, you know, fundamentally sectioned in another country in a, in a, in a hospital. Well, it's pretty much, I mean, incredibly terrifying, I suppose, is, is how I'd summarise it, because you go to the ER, which I did, and it becomes clear quite quickly once they've interviewed you and ascertained what you've done that you are going to be held there. I, I said that I wanted to leave and they said to me quite clearly that I wouldn't be able to leave and that they had a legal right to keep me for at least 72 hours. And that's that's really scary because although I obviously must have known on some level that I was in a really bad place, that I needed some help, the thought of being held against my will like that in a city very far away from home where I felt like I'd very few support systems that was incredibly terrifying and then when you're kind of in the hospital system it's quite hard to advocate for yourself it's quite hard to have somebody else advocate for you to kind of work out what's happening work out how you can get out I was very consumed with getting out as quickly as possible when in retrospect I should probably have been much more concerned with getting well actually engaging with some of the treatments and the therapies that were on offer, I think because I was so terrified of being locked in this place and having no control over that and having to, you know, lie to work about where I was and lie to my friends and family about where I was. All I was kind of concerned about at that point was getting out of there and, and getting back to what I thought was a normal life, really. Let's go back then and talk about We'll go back to your childhood. So um, describing where you grew up, I want you to describe where you grew up and tell us where you were in your early childhood. So, yeah, we, we grew up in um, North East Derbyshire, just north of Chesterfield and just south of Sheffield. It was an old, I suppose, mining village, a very small village where everybody knew everybody else. Everybody knew everybody else's business. And I, I suppose, entered the world into quite a dysfunctional family. My mum and dad had got married when my mum was just 16. She'd had my brother at the same age. She then went on to have me at 18 and my sister four years later than that. So, you know, by her early 20s, she had three kids and they had a very... Um, destructive and violent marriage and they divorced when I was two years old but then there were more um, more men who came along and there were episodes of both physical violence and sexual abuse from the age of about four or five until I was about nine or ten and you know that is a really difficult way I suppose to grow up as a kid because we were very poor and we grew up in 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 really tight circumstances but obviously when there's that kind of violence and terror going on inside your own home that makes everything much harder especially I think at an age where you're just coming into the person you're meant to be so these are the ages at which you're developing your character you're developing your personality and to have those things happen at that age I think is very harmful and, and can make things very difficult in the years that come after. You said that your parents divorced when you were two. I want to talk about your relationship subsequently with your father, which doesn't really doesn't really go that far, does it? No. So he'd been incredibly violent to my mum from pretty much the first days of their relationship and things progressively got worse. So, you know, one of the, the stories my mum first told me was of me being punched into the ashes of the fireplace by my dad and then he sat on her so she couldn't get up and comfort me. They had a very, very volatile relationship and he wasn't, in many respects, the best parent. And when they separated and then when they divorced, he went on and had another family and contact after that was very sporadic. We saw each other very rarely 
he would arrange to come and see us and then not turn up. There was a Christmas that he was meant to take us to see Santa Claus at the local co-op in Chesterfield. And we sat in the window, me and my brother, waiting for him to come. And he didn't turn up in the end and he didn't kind of, you know, call to say why he wasn't coming. And that pattern played itself out over and over again during my childhood. Um, throughout my childhood, and there'd be years where we never saw each other and then when I was about 16 or 17, I remember getting kind of an overwhelming urge, really, to understand where I came from, understand who my parents were. And I went and just knocked on his door one day. It was Boxing Day. And, you know, we had a perfunctory conversation and, and we tried a couple of times after that to build a relationship, but it, it kind of never worked. After that, and I think what I, I realised eventually was that he didn't really have much of an interest in, in being a father to us. And it just wasn't something, being a dad wasn't something that he was really, this sounds mad, but it, it just wasn't something he was really into. It wasn't something that he craved. He wasn't paternal in many respects. And, and so our relationship never really, in any meaningful respect, got off the ground. And, I mean, you mentioned then that there is, throughout your childhood... There's a, a string of men that come through the house. Some are married to your mum, some are not. Some are there for years, some for months, some for days. This is the, what, the late 70s, early 80s. North Derbyshire, ex-mining village. And somewhere, you know, we people of our generation romanticise in a lot of ways. This is the era of Thatcher closing all of these places mm. down. But these men, these awful, violent men that come through your mum's life time and time and time again. Yeah, and I think, you know, those times were especially difficult times in the north of England and in the Midlands. And not to excuse any behaviour or anything that went on, but I think when the mines closed and when a lot of the industry disappeared, there was a real crisis of masculinity in the north of England and in the Midlands. And I think there was a massive kind of destabilisation of, of traditional families men left wondering you know what they were going to do what the point of them was and and women having to go out to work for the first time often and i think a lot of the violence that we experienced once i learned a little bit more about the men involved they'd often been subject to that violence from their fathers and it was very much seemed to me to be a generational thing that was passed down and passed down and i have to say it wasn't some people read my book and are really shocked, but it wasn't that shocking where we grew up. There would be other mums at the school gates who had black eyes. There were often other parents who had black eyes. I remember a neighbour on the same street seeing her getting punched and her slide down the glass door of the, of the front door of their house. This was, to me, this kind of thing wasn't that shocking or surprising. And I think there was a lot of it growing up in the late 70s, as you say, and the 80s in those villages. And, you know, I think it wasn't as rare as we may like to believe it was. And I think there are many kids who had to grow up in households that involved violence, that involved abuse of some kind, whether it be emotional or physical or sexual. I think those things were happening more than maybe we'd like to admit. And most kids, if you look at the statistics, are abused by people from their own families. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Terry White. We're talking about her memoir, Coming Undone. And Terry, you mentioned that we've been talking about this sort of litany of men that pass through your life um, in your childhood, and most of which are violent. A couple of which, also, as you've you've already alluded to, include sexual violence. You go into quite a lot of detail in the book about mm. what you went through. I don't want you to repeat any of that on in this interview but I would like to talk to you about latterly writing that down you know reliving that those experiences through the process of writing this book well I think I think the detail you talk about is really is really important I think a lot of I wouldn't say abuse memoirs because because that sounds glib but I think a lot of memoirs and stories that talk about abuse often for me shy away from the detail and from the specifics of what that looks like and what that feels like and the reality is that trauma is is created by experience and by memories and experience and memories of abuse isn't it's not metaphor it's not um euphemisms it's not any of those things it's a really specific memory or a really specific experience that you went through and so when it came to writing the book there was no question for me that I was going to write it in a very detailed potentially you could say quite graphic way 
because any woman who has been abused either as a woman or a girl will tell you about the very specific flashbacks they have about the very specific memories they grapple with when they're alone about the things that they remember and it's about tastes and touches and smells and very very specific things and I didn't want to cut away at those moments because although that may be easier in many respects for the person reading the book, for me, that wasn't an accurate representation of what that feels like and what that experience is like. The reason that trauma is so difficult for so many people to get over, including myself, is because it is that detailed and because it is that painful and because every single little nuance fit is what keeps you awake at night. And I really wanted to make sure that was represented on the page. As you, you sort of alluded to this in, in the first half, but, you know, this is a period of time where I guess we tend to think of abuse, violence and abuse as obviously as, you know, incredibly horrible things in and of themselves, but enacted upon a young child who is going through a period where they are forming their own personality, becoming the person that they are going to be in the future. All of this obviously starts to affect who you become and uh, you know there are, there are various sort of modes of behavior that you that you pick up from a very young age and what you've already alluded to is, is self-harm you you, you, mm. you begin a habit of um, various forms of self-harm well yeah never, ever since I can remember really so very young maybe you know somewhere between five and seven and I was you know finding biros and snapping them and getting the plastic bits and scratching my arms and it was always really clearly a coping mechanism for me was to self-harm. And as I got older and as I became more aware of, of the ways that I could self-harm, it became more sophisticated and more severe. When I lived in New York, it was particularly bad. And, you know, we were talking razors, we were talking chef's knives. I subletted an apartment from a chef and she had professional knives lined up in the kitchen. I remember the day I moved into the apartment in New York and I remember looking at them and I write about this in the book. They kind of glinted in the sunlight and just thinking, oh, you know, fantastic, they're here if I need them. And Again, something self along with sexual abuse, self-harm is something I write about incredibly graphically in the book. And that's not because I want to glamorize it in any way or in any way make it seem like something people should do. But I wanted to be really honest about why people do that, why women who've been abused specifically do that, about the release it can give you in the moment, but ultimately about why it's such a destructive and harmful thing to do. And also one of the myths I wanted to, I suppose, shatter or at least challenge was the thought that this was just something teenage girls did. I, I remember somebody saying that to me. Oh, well, that's just what, you know, 13-year-old girls do. It actually isn't. You know, women do this. Women who've been through a lot of trauma do this. And I was doing it right up until my 30s. And I wanted to be really honest about the fact that I was going into work having a really professional, high-powered job. And then I was going home at night and I was self-harming at the same time. And both of those things coexisted for me. Your relationship with alcohol starts very young as well. Yeah, so, you know, I didn't... I was never a big drinker as a teenager... Probably in those years that I should have been, quote unquote, but I do remember when I was very young, probably eight or nine, my mum giving me my first drink and just absolutely feeling 
saved and released and like I discovered the answer and the secret to everything it felt like freedom it felt like salvation it made everything that felt painful at that point feel less painful and you know I I actually in my teenage years really resisted it and I really thought it was something that people did to harm themselves there was a lot of addiction going on in my in my family and the village where I grew up there were a lot of people who drank too much and I saw it as something very negative and I didn't really drink that much when I was at university either but then when I moved to London and over my 20s and into my 30s alcohol increasingly became a place of refuge for me so when I moved to New York and I was very lonely and I felt very isolated it was a very simple solution I suppose in many respects was to drink a lot by myself have that escape from my worries and my problems and my trauma and my memories for a specific amount of time and then you know those things always spiral because the release doesn't last long enough the escape doesn't last long enough and you're always searching for a more permanent answer and my drinking got very bad just before I I overdosed and was obviously one of the big reasons that I overdosed was how much I drunk at the time and I mean regardless of you know we've talked about the the violence and the and the sexual abuse which you know we're, we're on top of a situation that you know a, a lot of people experience which is just a dissolute lifestyle anyway like a, you, you grew up in you when I want to talk about when you first I guess when you were first aware that you personally were poor and therefore considered yeah. by a lot of other people in society worthless well it was always there from when we were very young I remember my mum always made reference to the first house we lived in with my dad we didn't have an inside toilet we only had an outside toilet the estate we lived on I remember there's a lot of judgment around the fact my mum was a single mum the, the clothes we wore I wore a lot of my brother's hand-me-downs the fact we were quite dirty a lot of the time I remember my mum always not being able to eat so sometimes to feed all of us she wouldn't eat a meal and so I was always conscious of those things and then there are more kind of overt signifiers I suppose which were the free school meals we got uniform vouchers for school we couldn't always afford new shoes or new clothes and that was really kind of constant throughout my early childhood and one of those things which I think you aren't really conscious of until other people make you aware of it in many respects and I I became quite conscious that you know we had a a telly that you had to put 50p pieces in the back to watch because we couldn't afford a new telly straight out so you put 50p pieces in and you got a certain amount of television and you know drive me mad when it ran out when I was trying to watch Beverly Hills 90210 and I became aware that not Everybody at school had a a TV that you put money in the back to be able to watch, that they didn't have an electricity meter or what have you. And so there's a great deal of shame around it, I think, because even when I didn't understand what it meant, I always felt a sense of shame that other people knew we didn't have much money, that other people thought we were dirty, that other people thought, you know, we weren't the right kind of people, that we came from a single parent family. All of these things to me felt like signifiers that I think as I got older, I I found really hard to shake. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, I want to talk about how how you basically got out and became, you know, a successful magazine editor. Like, you never really, obviously, shake that background. However, you do escape it. You do leave and, you know, become what to a lot of people would seem an incredibly successful, high-powered job. So I want to talk about that, but I guess before we do that, or as part of that, you know, we've talked about your mum, your dad, not 
strictly speaking, the best role models. Mm -hmm. So let's perhaps spend some time talking about your nana. Yeah, so my nana was pretty much the greatest human being that ever lived. And she was really, I suppose, the reason I got out. So she said to me from a really early age, you should go to university, you're really bright, you can be the one who goes and and does all of these things. And I I believe she had similar hopes for my mum, but obviously my mum got married at 16. And she, even before I knew what a university was, or, you know, I'd met anybody who'd ever gone to university, she was saying this to me and planting this in my mind. And I think as I got older, it never occurred to me because of her belief that I couldn't do it. So I was really concerned with doing well in my GCSEs, then doing well in my A-levels and getting to university. And there were lots of practical difficulties I you know I didn't have support from my parents and financial support wasn't there so I was the last year to get a grant and I got a student loan and then I got jobs and money was very very tight when I was at university I used to live on a budget of 15 pounds a week and that was my money for the week and I was really strict about that and it was I didn't have the greatest time at university. I always say this. I feel like it was kind of wasted on me in a way because I was so panicked the entire time that it wouldn't go the way that I wanted it to and I wouldn't be able to go on and get the job I needed to to get away from from the village. And I just found it incredibly difficult because I was so skint all the time. And also, you know, I didn't have support of my parents. I'm not even sure, to be honest, that my mum knew what degree I was doing. But my nana was an incredible support and always told me I could do it and was always there kind of, you know, saying that she believed in me. And what it made me realise is really you only need one person to believe that you can do it and you only need one person to be there encouraging you. And I I dread to think what would have happened if she hadn't been that one person, but she was. And she died when I was in my early 20s and she, you know, got to see me go to university, which she always said was her greatest wish. And I'd moved to London and and got a job in magazines. But I'm not sure I would have done any of that, truthfully, without her. Just one more question then to finish off. And, you know, there's there's, there's more in the book that we haven't talked about that I don't particularly, you know, I want want to leave something for the readers. I don't want to give everything away. Clearly, after that incident in the hospital in New York, those recovery things get you to where you are now. I want to talk about the process of writing this book then as, as, as sort of part of that, I guess, you know. Or, I mean, was that even the case? How has how has sitting down and, and writing this memoir been part of that? I don't think it has, you know, and I think I wouldn't have been able to write it if I hadn't have got myself into a better place. I think if I'd have tried to write this when I was in a bad place, it would have been disastrous because the reality of writing a book like this, which I was committed to it being really honest and really graphic and really truthful... It's that you essentially, you know, I felt like I was lifting my skin off every night and every morning and putting it back on again. That is really difficult. And I found the writing of it really, really difficult. I didn't find it cathartic, like a lot of people say. I found it a relief after I'd written it and after it had been published. And once it came out into the world, I felt a huge amount of relief. But I had to get myself into a much better place to even begin to put it down on paper. And I spent a couple of years in therapy. I took antidepressants. I was single for a long period and and really worked out kind of or tried to work out what was at the root of a lot of stuff. I started to dig into a lot of stuff from my childhood for the first time ever in my life. I spent time with family. I 
really put time and effort into my friendships and I I tried really to not fix myself as a person because I'm not sure that's ever possible, but to try and build myself into a person who could live day to day with everything that had happened and who could find her own brand of happiness. And that was really what I was focused on. And I, by the time I came to write this book, I felt more content and more settled and more peaceful, I think, than I had done in pretty much my entire life. And I think the book was a continuation of that feeling. And I think since it's come out, it's been a huge relief to be able to live a life that feels full of hope and happiness and also to be able to be honest about where I'm from and the things I've been through and the things that have made me the woman I am today. So I've been talking to Terry White. We've been talking about her amazing memoir, Coming Undone, which is out in the UK from Canongate. Terry, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.